Thank you, Father, for your great grace in our lives. And thank you again this Palm Sunday for the privilege of taking our Bibles, receiving a word from you to encourage us and to strengthen us in our walk before you, Lord, recognizing that uh, surely time is short and we could stand before your presence at any time. Father, thank you for the encouragement that your church brings to us. Thank you for the fellowship of believers uh, that we recognize we have assistance and we have strengthening uh, relationships around us. And may we bring honor and glory to you through our church and through our relationships. Thank you for the privilege of refreshing ourselves with singing together on Sunday morning, bowing our heads and humbling our hearts before you. And now, Father, we would humble our hearts and we would be contrite in your presence, recognizing that the one you esteem is one who is humble and contrite and trembles at your word. May we receive your word with grace now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are in a three-week series on the resurrection teachings in our Bible. If you were here with us last Sunday, you know that we entered into part one. We're doing three weeks of focus on the resurrections in our Bible. Last week, we talked about the resurrection of the righteous. And this week, we're going to talk about the resurrection of the lost. And then next week, of course, we're going to talk about the great resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I begin by just reminding you of that because I want to warn you that today's message is not a typical Palm Sunday Holy Calendar message. It sort of doesn't fit. But we're doing a series on resurrections and because it's Easter time, let me just put a plug in for the fact that soon we'll return, the, anticipate the week after Easter, returning to our study in the book of Genesis. So if you've just started coming in the last few weeks, we've been studying our way through the most amazing and interesting book of Genesis, and we'll look forward to reconnecting there uh, in the very near future. As we noted last Sunday as we began, if you were here, our Bible has just some amazing stories of resurrection uh, held within. We talked about that guy Eutychus last week. Remember him? The Apostle Paul was preaching into the night and they were up on the third floor and it got hot and he fell out of the window and he died. And Paul went down and prayed and laid hands on him and laid on top of him and raised him to life. It's just amazing. And I was thinking of another resurrection story as we think about this reality of people dying and their bodies rising again. There's a story in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. But to just kind of get the wheels turning this morning, I think it's just one of the more fascinating little snapshots of the reality that people can rise from the dead. It's in 2 Kings. It's a historical book of Israel. And you'll recall that uh, some of the big names back then were Elijah and Elisha. Remember, they were prophets. Elijah was older than Elisha, and Elijah took his mantle and laid it on Elisha. And they were God's men to lead Israel and communicate God's truth and God's word to Israel. Well, there is a remarkable story in 2 Kings chapter 13. It's only two verses. You don't have to turn there, just listen. 2 Kings 13, verse 20, it gives us this snippet of information. It just says, Elisha died and was buried. Okay, so... That's an important bit of information because if you'll recall, Elijah never died. He was translated up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Remember that story back in Sunday school? Seeing that on the paper before they had DVDs and videos, if you're as old as I am. And they would hold up the watercolor picture of, there goes Elijah in his fiery chariot. And then Elisha took over his place of leadership. But then Elisha grew old and died, and it says they buried him. Now listen to this. It says, now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Okay, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, time to plant potatoes and time to get attacked by the Moabites again. It's just the way it was with these enemies. And if you've been in our studies on Genesis, you remember where the Moabites came from, right? I believe they were offspring of the illegitimate... Um, incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughters. Remember that? And now here, many years later, they're enemies of Israel and they kill Israelites. 
Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. And when the man's body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. And then it goes on, Hazael, king of Aaron. It just goes on with the rest of the story. You're like reading your Bible. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. Is this real? I mean, they're having a funeral, as would have been uh, the tradition of the Israelites then, even then. They probably buried the body within 24 hours. So people say, oh, it was a swoon. I don't think so. It's right there. It says he died. And they're having this funeral, and they're where the rocks and the caves are so they can bury the guy. And here comes the Moabites. Oh, man, we got to get out of here. Can't finish this funeral now. Somebody pulls back the rock or door or whatever they had, and they toss the guy in, and he hits Elisha's bones and comes to life. You believe this stuff? Do you believe what we started talking about last week? Do you believe that every time you drive by a cemetery and you look over there and you see those gravestones, that every single body will come out of the ground one day? I'm here to tell you, fully clothed and in my right mind, that that is what the Bible teaches. Last week we focused on the resurrection of the righteous and we discerned that from, from God's word that um, there's a variety of resurrections and that, are, that are happening and these kinds of stories and tidbits go on. And you remember, if you were here last week, that we spent some time even building the case from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the Apostle Paul argued that the reality of human body resurrection is the very argument in which is couched the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That is, Paul said, if people don't rise from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. That's, that's one of the theological tenets of his argument. Interestingly enough, then, because of his resurrection, we can count on our resurrection as well. It's almost like circular reasoning, isn't it? Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn to Revelation chapter 20. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 20, I want to just remind you of a couple of verses from Scripture. We're not going to take the time or go to the effort that we did last week as far as turning through our Bibles and looking up so many verses. You were very good at that, I felt, and seemed to stay with me last Sunday. But this Sunday, I want you to know, as we've talked about this resurrection of the righteous, this Sunday, as we talk about the resurrection of the lost, there is really one primary key passage that talks the most about it. And that's in the book of Revelation, which if you go to the back cover of your Bible, come in from the back side of your Bible, go through the maps and the table and the, and the index of words, you'll find Revelation 21, then find Revelation 20. Start counting down, find Revelation 20. All right? And then some of you, you really need to make it your goal that this year you learn how to find books in your Bible. All right? Because you need to. As you turn there and as you settle in there at Revelation 20, just just stay there and listen with careful attention. We need to remind ourselves that this teaching of the bodily resurrection of all people who die is not something that is just in one place in Scripture. And we'll not review everything, but can I remind you that we have a numerous Old Testament teachings, and last week, one of them that I pointed out is Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. So if this is your first week with it, you could jot that down and look it up later, but I'll read it to you. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we encounter this in the Old Testament. You remember, we talked about Job and how he believed in the resurrection of his body. And in Daniel chapter 2, he prophesied about it, and he said, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. All right, that's poetic language for dead people rising up out of the ground. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, one of the things we see in Daniel's 
12.2 in this prophetic verse about the resurrection of the righteous and the, and the lost is that there is sort of a division there. It's implied in the way that some will rise to everlasting life and others will rise to condemnation. It's not clear in that verse alone if it's just one general resurrection. But we know from studying our Bible that there are two major facets to this resurrection. Okay? And that we'll talk more about that in just a minute. When we went to our New Testaments last week, do you remember that key teaching that Jesus gave in John's Gospel in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29? Remember what he said? Do not be amazed. Okay, so it's kind of like this, kind of like, dead people rise from the dead? And when Jesus was here in person teaching, he said, don't be amazed. Don't let that bother you. Don't, don't let that trouble your mind. Don't be amazed. For a time is coming, Jesus goes on to say, when all who are in their graves, did you get that? When all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good, it says, will rise to live, Jesus said. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There's a powerful reality there. Our Lord Jesus, in his own words, taught and has recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 5, that there will be a resurrection of those who are righteous and they will rise to live. And there will be a resurrection of those who are unrighteous and they will be condemned. There's a divide. There's two different resurrections. We're turning, we've turned to Revelation chapter 20 now in our Bible. And I want to show you that this is um, like the key place in our scripture where it tells us about the resurrection of the lost. I want to take just a minute and with your heads up and with full attention... I want to put this in context context in just a couple of minutes because I was thinking about a couple of things. For one thing, do you remember where Paul taught in Romans chapter 5, verse 1? He said, when you are born again, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sin is forgiven. You've acknowledged your sinfulness and you know that there's nothing righteous in and of yourself and what Christ did on the cross was for you and you enter into new life with Christ. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 5.1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation there means a judgment. There's no judgment for that sin. That sin has been transferred over to Jesus. That's what the reality of our salvation is. And so I don't stand accountable to answer for my sin in a judicial sense before a holy and righteous God. God is perfect. God is holy. And he expects us to be perfect and holy. And the fact that we're sinners and can't be perfect and holy means we're stuck in a well. But he sent Jesus down into the well to give us his perfection. So that by faith, we take that salvation, we're born again, and then the righteousness of Christ is now mine. Praise God. I believe that that very teaching and that doctrine is one of the great evidences why, in a few minutes, when we look at Revelation chapter 20, that we're talking about all of the lost people who've ever lived. We're not talking about any saved people or any people who know God or know Christ. Another reason is, and this is where I wanted your heads up to look and listen, which is good that you got started early. Let me just give you a little timeline again of events future in history so that when we start to read this Revelation 20 passage, you'll understand what he's talking about. Because even here, there's a separation of these resurrections of all the dead people. And we're alive right now, right? We're alive. Okay? It's real. Unless you're really, really smart and read really thick books with small print, you will agree easily with me that we're alive and this is real. Okay? And here we are. And some people die. Right? We talked about that last week. And we have funerals right here. And we talked about even our own Donnie Fellers. And we talk about the fact that when we die, we have a funeral, we bury the body but that the soul and spirit are immediately with the Lord. 
That's the believers in Christ. We'll talk about the lost in a few minutes, what happens to them. And here we are. And we keep on living. All right? We're still living. We've buried people. The Bible says clearly, and that's what we looked at in 1 Thessalonians 4 last week, that if we are here at the coming of the Lord, the Bible clearly, and believers since the beginning of the apostolic teaching in the church, when Paul and Peter and and Philip and John and all those guys were teaching, they have all looked for the coming of the Lord at any time. And so for 2,000 years, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. And it's going to happen. And here we are, but we're still living We're still living, okay? We've buried some people. But then one day, remember we said, he will fill the sky and he will return for his church. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ then will rise first. Remember that passage? And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And we believe that that is when we get our glorified body. That the soul and spirit that's been in heaven, remember Paul says in Philippians 1 and in 2 Corinthians 5, that Donnie Fellers and all believers in Christ, that when they die, to be absent from the body. What's absent from the body? What's this old tent? This tent is put in the ground. To be absent from the body, my soul and spirit, is to be present with the Lord. And we don't understand a lot about that. We call that the intermediate state right now. That, what, what does it look like and what it's like? We're not sure exactly. The Bible just gives very small snippets of information. But with Jesus will come all the spirits of all the believers. And their bodies will be caught up and will be reunited with their spirit. And that's when they'll get their glorified body. And remember, we talk with that glorified body. It will be like Christ's resurrection body. It's a body that is equipped to live for eternity. It'll never get sick. It'll never die. It'll live for eternity. It's, it's, it's unfathomable to us. But Paul went to great pains to say, how foolish, you don't understand? What you bury can't live forever. It's got to put in the ground and sprout up like a seed and it comes out something new. Read 1 Corinthians 15 like we did last week and that's clear. Then we, if we're, if we're not dead, that'd be kind of neat, wouldn't it? You really believe this stuff, church? be kind of neat not to have to die. But you know what? We're not in charge. And we're going to die if the time goes by in all different kinds of ways. There's going to be some more wrecks. There's going to be some more cancers. There's going to be some more tumors. There's going to be some more diseases. And we will die. As in Adam, all die. And sin brings forth death, physical death. Okay? But... Whenever this happens, this coming of the Lord, whenever it happens, there will be believers in Christ alive. If it happens today or right now before I'm done preaching, then we will go up. The dead in Christ first, then we go up. And as we go up is when I believe there will be the transformation of our bodies into glorified bodies. All right, you got it? So here we are living. Here we are living. The dead in Christ are buried. Their bodies are rotting in the ground. Their soul and spirits with the Lord. We're living. We're moving. And all of a sudden... Jesus comes back. Anybody who's alive in Christ will go up. The dead will go first and we'll follow. We all have our glorified body. And then, now stay with me because I'm going to go fast. Then that marks a time future that God talks about in the Bible clearly over and over called the, the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation period. And for the first three and a half years of that time, literal three and a half years, I believe, I, I believe that sincerely. It's three, little three and a half years. There will be peace. The Arabs and the Israelis will make peace. There will be during that time the formation and the clear declaration of a one world power. Okay, we talked a little bit about this last week. I know, but I wanted to go through it. But three and a half years into it, it's called the abomination, abomination of desolation. The one world leader who is the Antichrist, he's going to show his true colors and he's going to just go crazy and he's going to rule with a rod of iron and it's going to become an outpouring of God's wrath for the next three and a half years. That, that is the book of Revelation, the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments, and the, the bowl judgments. And that's when, when you read in the book of Revelation, the scorpions come out of the earth and, and there'll be, the sky will turn black and, and a third of the earth will be burned up. And whether that's a nuclear fallout or what, we don't know exactly. It's in picturesque language. And for three and a half years, it'll be horrible. All right, where are we? Where are we? We already went up, Right? 
Remember, we read last week in Revelation 20, that's where you're open, those believers from the evangelists in, in, during that time, there will be many, many people saved during this seven-year time. And if you follow Jesus, get your heads cut off. And right here at the end, they get resurrected. Remember in 20 verse, look at it, look at it. It says, they came to life, verse 4, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Okay, we're talking about a thousand years, but we only got seven years here. We got the seven years. Because at the end of this seven years, they're going to come down. And, and In fact, let's read it. Up at, up at the beginning of chapter 20. He says, verse 2, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him in the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So you got this seven years, okay? The world's still here. These buildings are still here unless they're part of the third that gets burned up. And then the nations of the earth are going to gather against Israel. And then God is going to come. Jesus is going to come and he, at the end and he's going to rescue Israel. He's going to destroy many people and, and with the sword out of his mouth. And that's going to begin a thousand years where Jesus himself is going to rule right here on earth. We call that the millennium period. All right? We call it a time when you hear about the lion and the lamb and the serpent all being together and eating straw and not eating meat and stuff. For a thousand years, Jesus will hold back sin on this earth And where's Satan? He's been thrown into the abyss. Did you catch that? For this thousand years. Okay, now let's pick up to go into our text. Chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. That's Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look, there's only one page left to your Bible. This is getting very close to the end of the story, and an eternity future just goes on and on forever. What happened was at the thousand years that Jesus has been reigning on earth, he brought his saints back to rule with him, Satan was released. Did you catch that? Out of the end of the thousand years. And he gathers the nations and deceives them. He's that great deceiver. He's a liar. He deceives them one more time. They gather against Israel, God's beloved city again. And that time, God wipes them out for good. All right? And he takes Satan and the beast and the false prophet and he throws them in the eternal lake of sulfur burning fire forever and ever. At the end of the thousand years. When was the righteous resurrection? It was sometime back here. It's sometime future, but it's back here. Then seven years of tribulation. Then a thousand years of the reign of Christ. And now we're at verse 11, chapter 20, Revelation. Let's read it. Then I saw, John says, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in those books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I would like for the remainder of our time to make four observations about this part of the text. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. This resurrection. And the first thing, and we're not going to really exegete these verses, but we're going to make some observations about what this is telling us happened. And when we look at it and we read it, the first thing we see is that there's been a great resurrection, right? Number one, there has been a resurrection with vast participation. A resurrection of vast participation. Look what it says. 
He says in verse 12, John says, I saw the dead, great and small. And, and we have every reason to believe that this is only the unbelieving. And then it says in verse 13, And the sea gave up their dead, and death gave up its dead, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And so you have this vast, I picture a vast gathering of all the dead. Think about it. This is everybody who's ever lived, who died, who is not a worshiper of God. Everybody who's ever lived, who does not love Christ. Everybody who's ever lived, who has no confidence in the blood of Christ to forgive him of sin. It goes back to Cain. Cain. He comes up out of the ground, wherever he is, in his pre-Diluvian lair, somewhere down there. And remember Lamech in Genesis 4 who pounded his chest and boasted to his two wives that I killed a man today. And everybody who mocked Noah, Noah, no way. And then the door went shut and the rain came and they all died in the cataclysmic worldwide flood. It really happened. And all those bodies floated around and were eaten by by fish and and carp and ravens and stuff, and they've gradually just ended up in the dust of the ground, totally in decomposition, and the sediment settled in, and you got layer upon layer, and then you've got guys like Pharaoh, the Pharaohs who hated God and defied God and led their whole nation away from God. And you've got archaeological digs where you've got layer upon layer of civilizations, and in every one of those layers, there are the molecules of their cemeteries, right? They're dead. And John says, I saw all of the dead, great and small. What does he mean by great and small? I take that to mean of of social class, of significance to the historical timeline of mankind, from Pharaoh to some little kid who threw a rock through your window. He's a dirty, rotten sinner. He never met Jesus. To Hitler, to Stalin, to Leningrad to people who tried to convince the whole world that there was no God and to worship me and they live on our planet right now, don't they? From those great in stature to those who just walk down the mall and and worship themselves as they catch their reflection in the glass and spend their money and worship their dollars and get in their shiny automobiles and go home. And God is no part of their lives. And great and small, they will all be there. The sea gives up their dead, and the cemeteries give up their dead, and death in the grave. And it even says Hades. What is that? Hades gives up its dead. Let's take another little detour for just a minute, and let's catch a glimpse in Luke chapter 16 of what this is. And let me explain to you what the Bible uh, seems to give evidence to, clear evidence, that this is what happens to the soul and spirit of people who die who do not love God. People who die who do not know Christ. This is what, it, this is what happens to their soul and spirit. It's Luke chapter 16. It's a story that Jesus told. Many of you will know it very well. It's called, in my Bible, entitled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. And look what it says. Verse 22 is where we'll start. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Luke Luke 16, 22. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus, this beggar, by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, They have their Bible. Let them read their Bible. If they don't believe the Bible, they won't believe it if somebody comes back from the dead. Speaking even of Jesus Christ himself, who has come back from the dead, and people still don't believe it. This is a snapshot, snapshot, a snippet of Christ's own teaching of the lost outside of Christ. Listen, 
You can go back to Revelation 20 now, but listen closely. The dead stand before this great white throne that we'll talk about in a second. This resurrection of all these dead. And it says that the sea gave up their dead and that death or the graves gave up their dead and Hades itself regurgitated the dead. What is he talking about? I believe that this is the connecting of the dead bodies resurrected and the spirits of the dead coming together just like when we as believers in Christ have our dead bodies reunited with our spirit and get our glorified body. Those who die outside of Christ have their spirit. When they die right now, if somebody doesn't know Christ and they die, they don't go be with the Lord. They go to this place, and I believe it's still this very place. Don't know where it is. Don't, it's some spiritual realm where their spirit can live with an awareness. They don't have their future body yet. I don't know what this spirit body's like. We don't know much about it, but they live there in utter torment, wishing to even have a a drop of water put on their lips. They have enough awareness to know that they don't want anybody else in their family to go there. But that's it. And I believe that what he's talking about here is that when Hades is emptied out, that the spirits of these people, this rich guy and his body are reunited and then in some manner, and I haven't thought of a good name for it, but they get their glorified body for destruction. Just like we get a glorified body for the exaltation of Christ and we get a glorified body that's good for living in celestial cities. We get a glorified body that will last forever outside of the realm of of a time dimension. They get a body that will live forever in the torment and the, the devastation and the eternal condemnation of the eternal lake of sulfur. And then it says, back in Revelation 20, let's go there. It says that Hades itself will be thrown. Did you get that? Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The reality of death and the holding pen of Hades or hell, and as some of you use this language, you shouldn't, but you've heard it all, and someone will say, you go to hell. What they mean is they're going to that place of torment. They don't really think about the theological reality of it. But if a person doesn't know Christ, their soul and their spirit go to Hades, or hell is a good word for it. Other Bible words are Sheol, Gehenna, which means a burning trash dump. And, and so that's where their spirit, and then at this resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, their body and their soul and their spirit come back together and they get the glorified body for destruction. And then God throws death, he throws the Antichrist, he throws Satan, and he throws Hades itself into the eternal burning lake of sulfur. You say, Pastor Van, don't you believe that that's just some kind of a spiritual thing? Or I believe it's something tangible. I believe it has some reality to it that is a counter-equivalent, counter polarized of heaven. If heaven is more than just a spiritual concept, then the eternal burning lake of sulfur has to be something more than just some kind of a spiritual concept. It's real. And you know, a lot of this evidence all goes back to the reality of how prophecy is fulfilled in the life of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It all happened exactly the way the Bible said. And there's absolutely no evidence anywhere to believe that these words don't mean exactly what they mean. Because people love to spiritualize this stuff and turn it into something that's kind of ethereal. And well, we we don't really know. No, we only have snapshots, but there it is. So the first thing we see, and let's click off the other three, is a resurrection of vast participation. The participation of all who have died from Cain on who don't know God. Second thing, let's go back up to verse 11. Then I saw, John said, a great white throne and him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. The second thing that we see in this picture that John sees in this vision is a courtroom beyond our imagination. A courtroom that's just kind of beyond our imagination. Look what it says. It says, I saw a great white throne. The word great there is in a Greek word, translated great into English here, but it's a word megan, mega, mega, big, it's huge. This is an awesome thing. It's not little like this. It's big. 
gets big. And then it says, it's white. Because why? Because it's a, that's a throne of perfection. It's a courtroom where there's no evil allowed. It's a courtroom that is upon the throne where our Lord Jesus rules and reigns. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Jesus said in John 5, 27, that God has given him, himself, Jesus, the authority to judge. All judgment has been given to the Son. Listen, this is none other than a great, white, pure, holy, righteous, just throne upon which Jesus sits in such an awesome, victorious way that it says it's happening even at a time when it says the earth and the sky will flee from His presence. I take that to be a reference to what you can look up in 2 Peter chapter 3 where it says that there will be a melting down of the universe that will all be destroyed by fire. And I personally hold that it's not a remake of the surface of this earth, but it is a destruction of every particle in this universe of matter that we know it. It is all uncreated. It is all melted down. It, is, it flees from His presence. It's gone. And then suspended in this huge spiritual vacuum are the resurrected of the dead, reunited with their soul and their spirit, standing before, in this great throng, before the great white throne. What a picture. It's beyond imagination. Do you remember Jesus' own teaching in Matthew chapter 7 where He said, That the door to salvation, the gate to salvation is a narrow gate and few there be that find it. But that the road that leads to destruction is what? A broad road. And remember the word he used? Few find the narrow way, but many are on the broad road to destruction. See, there's a lot of people walking around with all kinds of confidence. They think they're tough. I see them all the time. I see them up at Shepherd in the weight room. They got barbed wire tattooed around their bicep. Think they're tough. And they don't know that all that has to happen is a little bit of their white blood cells get out of balance with their red blood cells and they can't lift 20 pounds. In fact, it doesn't even have to be that bad. At midnight, Monday night, I'm, I can tell you where I was, but all night long I had the stomach flu and I couldn't lift 20 pounds. These bodies are weak, they're nothing, and we make up all kinds of systems and we think we're going to live forever. And all these people stand in arrogance to God and they don't pay attention to this stuff. And God says, look... There's a resurrection that's coming, a vast participation, and it's going to be in a courtroom that's beyond your imagination. And I want to tell you that what's going to happen there now is, and this is very important, number three, it's going to be a judgment of unbiased evaluation. You say, it's not fair, Pastor Van. It's not fair because, no, no, listen, there's not going to be any lawyers there. There's not going to be any liaisons. There's not going to be any recourse. There's not going to be another level court. It's just going to be Jesus, the perfect judge, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-recording judge. And that's how we know it's unbiased because look what it says. Standing before the throne, the books were opened. You know what the books are there? There's every evidence that the books there is the recording of their lives. It will be shown them. There's no argument. Do you see what you are without God? Without the righteousness of God? Without the righteousness of Christ? This is what you are. A filthy rag. And it's in the books. Every nasty thought. Every hateful deed. Every eye you wanted to scratch out because they liked your boyfriend in sixth grade. Every wicked thing you ever did. Every time your husband slammed the door and walked out and you wished he'd fall and trip and break his neck. Every wicked thing. Every horrible thing. Every woman that ever seduced a man, every man that went looking for a woman, everything, it's all in the books. It's right there. It's going to be right there. From the candy bar you stole to every wicked part of the conscious psyche, every part of the emotional framework, and it's all clear, and it will all be perfect justice. So Jesus will know, sitting on his throne, by opening the books, every part that's your fault, every part that was your neighbor's fault, when your neighbor's fault when you fought over the fence line. Everything. Jesus will know who's in trouble and who's not. Everything's right there. And so you'll have no... So listen to me. If you're a skeptic, when you're standing there and the books are opened, that will be all the evidence you need. And you won't be a skeptic anymore. You'll know that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that you have no righteousness with which to stand before him. 
If you're a procrastinator and you say, oh, oops. You better wake up because there's a day coming when the resurrection of those outside of Christ, when the books will be opened and you'll have no more excuses. Well, I was busy mowing my lawn, whatever. You better pay attention. If you're an intellectual philosopher and you want to think about it and you want to roll around and you want to define truth from your own angle, the books will define truth for you. If you're a punk, whether you've got barbed wire tattooed around your bicep or not, do you just think you're the man and this is nonsense? You better wake up because when the books are open and you're before that great white throne, you'll be on your face. If you're a self-righteous person of good works and you think there's no way God would put me in hell, the books will expose you for the dirty, rotten person you are on the inside until you're scoured with the blood of Christ. Until his righteousness is there. If you're a hardened sinner and you're sitting there and you just say, let him go ahead and try. I can take it. No, you can't. You're laughable to the one in the great right throne. You're but dust. In fact, all of the nations, the sum total of the nations, Isaiah said, are but dust in the palm of his hand. Who do you think you are? It's like a, it's like a little ant swimming in its canoe out in front of the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower aircraft carrying. You better get out of my way! They don't even know you're there. The ant in his canoe, that big. In front of, out in the middle of the ocean. They never heard the ant. They didn't even know the ant was there. That's how it's minuscule, but God in his all-knowingness will know you're there, but your insignificance will be the same as far as a hard heart shaking your fist at God. You won't intimidate the one on the great white throne. The books will expose you for what you are. If you're a fool like my old high school buddies who would say, Marceau, I'm going to party in hell. If you're a fool, you need to wake up and knock off that nonsense. Because once the books are open, you will know there's no party. In fact, point number four is that what we see then finally in the picture is an eternal life of fiery condemnation. An eternal life of fiery condemnation. Then the death. The sea gave up the dead, verse 13. In it, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. When death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire is the second death. Okay? Fiery condemnation. Can I take a second and comment? Judged according to the works that you've ever done. We have tons of scripture. We'll not look up. There's many scripture. You are not saved by good works, but your salvation is always evidenced by good works. And Jesus himself taught, this is in Matthew chapter 7 also. He said, don't you know that a good tree can only bring forth good fruit, but a bad tree cannot bring forth bad fruit? James put it this way. He said, a fountain can't bring forth salt water and fresh water at the same time. You see, James also built a strong case for the fact that if you have a real living faith, it will always show in your works. And so when the books are open, it will be the documentation, it will be the evidence that there was no fruit of righteousness anywhere in your life. So then that leaves us with a logical question because we've seen this resurrection of huge, vast participation. We've seen that, uh, that it's a courtroom beyond our imagination, very intimidating. It's a judgment with impartial, personal, and final evaluation and unbiased evaluation, it ends up in an eternal life of fiery condemnation. You say, how do you know it's eternal life and not like annihilation after a while? Well, a little clue would be right down at the bottom of chapter 20 and verse uh, 10, the end of verse 10, where the devil and the false prophet and the beast were thrown in. It says, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And that's just one. We won't turn to the rest. There's tons of references that show it is an eternal existence. That glorified body for condemnation that the unrighteous gets equips them somehow to experience all of the pain and the suffering but never be destroyed. That's why that resurrection takes place, to remake that body. So what's the question that we have to end with? Notice the last verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown 
into the lake of fire. Do you see that there's two sets of books here? There's the books of your works, and then there's the book of life. What is that? Flip the page to chapter 21. Look at verse 27. Nothing impure. Now talking about the new heavens and the new Jerusalem where we'll spend eternity that Chris was singing about. Nothing impure will ever enter it. 21-27. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know what the Lamb's book of life is? It's like a record. It's based upon an ancient custom from this time frame and before where these cities would keep a record and these countries would keep an official logbook of who their citizens were. And if your name was in the book and you owned property and so forth, and you know, there was no question you were part of that community. You were part of that census. And the Lamb's Book of Life is, is a book that evidently really exists where when you come to a place in your life where you recognize that I have no righteousness in of myself and the books will expose me for what I am and I reach out to the righteousness of Christ because this is the question I kept trying to get to. Where do I get the righteousness to be perfect enough to get in with God? You get that from Jesus. Remember, in our lostness and in our sinfulness, we're like stuck in a well. We're like in our, in our head on our head, in the mud, down in the bottom of a dark well. And we can't get out by anything we do. But God so loved the world, lost in its sin and stuck in a well, head first in the mud, that he sent Jesus to come down in that well and to take us. And if we just accept his free gift of forgiveness, then the Bible clearly teaches that our sin was transferred on Jesus and his righteousness is imputed or transferred over to us so that when God sees us, so that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, not because of what I've done, but just by accepting the free gift of his salvation. That's what it means. And your book is journaled. Your name is journaled into the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. You follow me? So this morning, you have to ask yourself this question. Am I going to be in the first resurrection of the righteous? Or am I going to be lying in the ground, my body rotting, eaten with worms, my soul and spirit in Hades, and am I going to be resurrected at the end of the thousand years after Satan is finally condemned and doomed into the lake of fire forever? To stand before that great white throne, to have the books open to prove to me that my name's not in the book of life, and that I depended on something other than the righteousness of Christ to get me there. Amazing, isn't it? You know what's so great about this plan of salvation is that the Bible is clear that God loves sinners and that Jesus came to give his life for sinners. The Apostle Paul already claimed the spot that says, of whom I am chief, the sinners. Paul said he's the worst. So you can only be tied for second place, probably, of worst sinners. That means you can be saved today. It's like this. I have to admit that I'm a sinner. And I have to, by faith, ask God to just save me of my sin and transfer the righteousness of Christ over to me. And Lord, take my sin and transfer it over to Jesus. That's what he did on the cross. It's not automatic. It's something you receive as a gift from God, not by works but as a free gift. Will you bow your head with me, please? I think it's really appropriate for you to just pause for a minute before I close in prayer. We sing a hymn and go home. For you to ask yourself if you have a confidence that your name is in the Lamb's book of life kind of a way that we do. Just keep your heads bowed and let me talk to you for a few more minutes, okay? Just relax. West Virginia already won for the weekend. Don't worry about anything. Just think a minute with me. A way that we kind of test ourselves is with this question. If you were to die today and stand before God and he looked at you and said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That's what I want you to think right now. What would you tell God if he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Are you thinking? Do you know? 
You can know. See, there's only one right answer. It starts with, I don't deserve your heaven, but the only reason I can come in is because I claim the forgiveness that is in the blood of Christ that cleansed me from my sin. And God, go look, my name's in the book based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ on my behalf. He transferred his righteousness to me so that I stand before you perfect. How does that happen? A, admit that you're a sinner, would you right now? B, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who died for you, and then he rose again victorious to seal this as true. Would you just confess that he is your Lord and Savior today? You can do all of this right now with your head bowed. Acknowledge your sin. Believe that Jesus is the one who takes that sin. Ask God to transfer the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. Just in faith believing, that's it. It's not a a switch. There's no button to push. It's a a mental transaction that leads to a spiritual reality in your mind. Putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did for you because God loves you. Does not want you to be in the second judgment, the second resurrection. Father, you know our hearts today. You know the ones that have peace right now and calm, even brokenness before you as they worship with the reality of what you saved us from. By no merit of our own, but by grace in Christ alone. And you know the troubled hearts here this morning, Lord. And so would you bring your peace? Would you, as a gentle, loving, heavenly Father, Open their minds to these truths and may your Holy Spirit communicate and may it all come together where the lights turn on and they understand their need as a sinner for the saving, cleansing blood of Christ to scrub them clean, to take his righteousness, that he pays their penalty and takes their sin and gives his goodness, transforms them. Do your work, Father. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.